and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's Mother's Day. It's just a joy to be here with you for our time of preaching. By the way, if you're new here, I guess I should introduce myself. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We have a few very gifted pastors here. Who has their Bible handy? Let's go ahead and get those out. Let me see those. Let me see those. Hold them up. Oh, good job. I love to see that. Man, that's... We're going to be in the fifth chapter of John today as we continue in our study through this great book in this series titled, So That You May Believe. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your head with me? Father God, thank you for who you are, what you have done for us. God, you led your people out of Egyptian slavery and across the sea on dry land. God, you made a way when there was no way. And God, you have saved your people again, us from the chains of the slavery of sin. God, these chains of sin have held us fast, and yet you have made a way again to free us with the death of your son, Jesus the Christ. So we worship you this morning by singing songs about you, what you have done for us. (laughs) But God, we just simply want to thank you for taking care of us every day. I mean, our food, our housing, our shelter, our, our health, God, for springtime in the Rockies, for getting to live here in Colorado. God, you've been so good to us. You've been better to us than we have been to ourselves. Thank you for that. Thank you for you being you, God. Lord, you told us that we could and should ask for wisdom from you, and that's what we're going to do right now. God, you are the fountainhead of wisdom, so we just go straight to the source. Grant us insight into who you are so that we can understand who we are in you and how to relate to you, God. We go to these words in the Bible that you inspired men to write under the guidance of your Holy Spirit. God, these words are not just wisdom. They are life to us, and we see that. Lord, we've come from all over northern Colorado to hear from you today. Take our minds, take our attention. Help us to focus on these next few minutes together. We offer our time and attention to your words as an act of worship. I ask all these in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please rise with me as we read from our text in the Bible today, if you're able. Can we try something old? It's new to us, but it's like really old to some of you. But I want to try to see it. It'll be new to most of you. The church has done this for hundreds of years, more than a millennia, really. It's this. When I finish reading, you always hear me say, this is the word of God. And and here's your job. When I say that, you say, praise be to God. Okay? This isn't for us to get goosebumps, although I do. This is just another cool way to praise God for giving us the Bible, his word. You see what I mean? So let's practice. This is the word of God. Oh, you guys are great. They didn't think you could handle it. I thought you could handle it, but good job. Let's do this for reals this time. Here it is. John chapter five, verse eight through 16. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had 
been healed. This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of God. Good job. You may be seated. Let's remind ourselves where we are, when and where together, when we were together last uh, week, we, we looked at Jesus' third sign that the Apostle John describes for us here in chapter 5. The sign that John is showing us is this miracle, the healing of the lame man who had spent 38 years in this condition. This man's daily practice had been to lay by this spring-fed pool in Jerusalem where hundreds of sick would gather every day uh, in hopes of getting healing. The popular myth was that an angel would come down and stir the water and that if you could get into the water after it had been stirred by the angel, well, then you would be cured of whatever disease that ailed you. Jesus, apparently alone with none of his followers with him at that moment, slips to this uh, little place, kind of unbeknownst to anyone else, and goes straight to this pool with hundreds of six people hoping for a cure. He walks up to this man laying there, and he says, do you want to be healed? I love that line. And in verse 7, the disabled man says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Jesus says in verse 8, check this out, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Now notice there are three commands we looked at there. Jesus gives this guy, really? Three commands. One, Jesus tells him, get up. Meaning he had to stand up from his mat that he had laid on all these years. Two, Jesus says, pick up your mat That thing that has carried you for the last 38 years, you're going to carry it now. You're going to define it instead of it defining you. And third, Jesus commands the man to walk. So, verse 9, instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. If you were raised a Christian in church, you might have read and heard this story hundreds of times or more and miss the deeper meaning and the conflict that's about to occur. At least that's my story. I mean, I'd heard this hundreds of times, but as I got ready to study this, if you were new to following Jesus, the significance that Jesus performed this sign on a Sabbath, that's a big stinking deal. Stinking is a theological term I'll explain to you sometime. For the Pharisees, For the church leaders to break the Sabbath meant you could be essentially kind of cut off from the local synagogue, from the temple, and you couldn't make sacrifices. And that was the center of the Jewish life. So essentially, you would be shunned or even effectively taken out of society. You couldn't even buy or sell in the marketplace anymore. And in the most 
flagrant cases, they may even stone someone for working on Sabbath. Now, what seems to be the point of the healing of this that the Apostle John puts in the book is that this man, formerly lame, immobile, can now walk. And although this is a major sign that Jesus has the power to heal, the much bigger story here is that last line of verse 9 that says, now that day was the Sabbath. Now remember chapter 5 begins this new section of John that will continue through chapter 8. Jesus begins to kind of butt heads against these, these Jewish leaders. Now not just for the fun of it, not just to argue for argument's sake, he seeks to public, publicly expose the absurdity of what they're teaching. Uh, we've said it's like each time Jesus goes down to Jerusalem and from Galilee, it's like he's poking the bear. Jesus is challenging the religion and the authority of these Jewish leaders because they had taken this old law of God, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and made it into something that it was never intended to be. A system to control people, and check this out, enrich themselves. While at the same time, sending all the followers of this religion to hell. Think about this. Jesus apparently ditches his group of followers for the afternoon, who must have been close by, probably in the temple. He goes to this pool of Bethesda. Out of hundreds and hundreds of disabled, sick people, he picks out this particular guy and tells him, get your mat and get out of here. Those three commands, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, is Jesus pushing against these Jewish leaders because he's doing this on the Sabbath, right? Now you see on the surface, we read this and think, oh, well, Jesus came to heal the sick guy. And in a sense, that's true. Jesus picked this guy and healed him. But like we talked about last time, Jesus didn't then heal the other hundreds of sick people laying there. Why? I mean, he could have just spoken a word, snapped his fingers, boom, they're all healed. Now this may upset some of you. But hear me out. Although Jesus healed many like this guy in our story, he certainly didn't heal even most people of the day of their physical ailments. Listen, Jesus coming to earth in incarnation of him becoming a man was not primarily about healing physically sick people and making their life better. It was about taking care of people's much bigger need, sin. And it's their sin that was keeping people from God, not their physical infirmities. By the way, if you're not a Christian, this is your biggest problem too. Your sin weighing you down. It's, it's like a bag of rocks. Every time you sin, you slip a rock into that bag. And someday soon, at the end of your life, you're going to have to swim with that bag of rocks. And baby, you're going to go straight to the bottom. Jesus offers to take your sin to himself and give you his righteousness or what we call the great exchange and make you into a child of God. That's the offer. You see, so many times we hear dudes preach a kinder and gentler Jesus that just wants, just wants you to have a, your best life now. Just, just improve things like more money, nicer house, lose some weight, 
heal you of any physical defects. Take that pain away. It's like they preach a kind of Jesus that will make things better. If you just give Jesus a chance, he'll give you a happier life. They say things like Jesus only wants to make you happy. He only wants to make you joy-filled. And that sounds so good to us, right? Especially after a hard week. Guys who preach this kind of prosperity gospel will bring out verses like this in John 10, 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. And the verse is right. Jesus did say this for sure. And he means it. But the prosperity preachers love to take this verse out of context and use it for their battle cry to their followers of them for this fake brand of Christianity. But when they do that, they neglect the far deeper and apparent meaning of the text when you read the the verse in context. Because what Jesus is talking about here is a parable of his relationship with his people that have been given to him The elect, or what the Bible uh, is represented in this parable, are his sheep that says are given to him by God the Father. And then Jesus is described as the good shepherd. Jesus calls his sheep by name. He doesn't call the other sheep, those that are not his. He says, the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. All my sheep. Now, what Jesus is saying in verse 10 of John 10 then, is that there are false shepherds who will kill, steal, and destroy. But that as he, as the good shepherd, will lead his true sheep into real life. You see how context makes a difference? Now the abundance of life here is not talking about necessarily material things. Could be, but probably not. Jesus is not Offering his sheep some kind of extension of life. Like you'll live longer if you're a Christian. He's not offering richer material blessings. Like you get a Cadillac or a BMW if you're a Christian. Now, what Jesus is offering his sheep is a life then that can be lived at a higher connection with God as we are in obedience to his will. What Jesus offers life that is truly life, life as God really intended it to be, life free from the penalty, power, and the presence of sin. He's not just talking about quantity. He's talking about quality of life. In short, a life like his. He's offering something much better, a relationship with God himself, a deep, personal relationship an eternal relationship with God. What Jesus is saying is that when we obey Jesus' commands as the good shepherd, we will find abundant life or true life in him. When we do that, we will bring glory to God in how we live our lives. But on the this side of heaven, baby, life can be hard. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> life, life could just be hard. And Jesus said, expect it to get much harder, especially if you're a Christian. The misunderstanding of who Jesus is comes when so many preachers fail to preach verses like this. When Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, he says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Now, where I grew up, that's called fighting words. Jesus came to break the power of sin and death to free his people from the power of sin. Now, I think the key understanding to this passage and and starting that war of breaking the chains of this false man-made religion that these Jewish leaders had enslaved all the Israelites with is that he carried out this sign of healing on this dude on a Sabbath. What I'm saying is that our little ears, when we hear the story, we don't understand how big of a deal it was for Jesus to challenge the Jewish leaders on this issue of keeping the Sabbath. We just simply don't understand the Sabbath. I think this particular story has been put here by John, partly because this is the power of the God, uh, Son of God Almighty, but mostly because of its connection with the Sabbath dispute. Now, later on in this chapter, this initiates this teaching of Jesus where Jesus is going to make some bold claims. He's going to challenge these religious dudes. Buddy, talk about picking a fight. Jesus does. He stands up to these dudes. Now, why it is such a bone of contention? And how did God intend the Sabbath to be kept in the practice of the Jew, Jewish law and how it is to be kept now as we Christians in the church follow Christ? We'll look at that. But So think about this story. Jesus gives this command to the now healed guy. Stand up, pick up your mat, and what? Walk. Now look at it again, verse 9. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now he does it. Jesus heals the man of whatever has kept him from walking for nearly four decades. The guy stands up, picks up his mat, carries the mat away. Now watch what happens. I think Jesus knew this would happen. In fact, I think this is why Jesus picked this particular dude to heal. Look at verse 10. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Now remember, this pool is right next to the temple. And apparently, since this is the Sabbath, the Jewish religious leaders, they're like on guard watching everybody like a hawk. I've got these long flowing robes, big hat. Now this, if this doesn't make sense, let me give you some background real quickly. When God creates the universe in that first week of creation, he does the work in six days. But on the seventh day, it says in Genesis 2, verse 2, on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. It doesn't mean that God took a nap or watched football. No, he continued keeping the universe going through his power, but God ceased his creative work. Now, it's not until the law is given more than a millennia later, given through Moses, by by God through Moses to his people, he makes this one of the most foundational laws, or what we call the Ten Commandments for his people, the Jews. He says this in Exodus 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You were to labor for six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. 
You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in it in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Look, God codifies the Sabbath into the Ten Commandments, so it must be of critical importance, right? Now, check this out. When God says, you must not do any work, what does that mean? Well, the main definition was thought and taught That whatever your regular work was for six days, he's saying, do that, don't do it on the seventh day. Like if you're a carpenter or your mom or your teacher, you wouldn't do what you normally do on the seventh day. You would rest and you would worship. Meaning you would do stuff, but just not your regular work. In fact, when these same religious leaders had complained that Jesus' own disciples had broken the law, by picking heads of grain as they walked through the grain fields, which you could do any other day. And you could take it and you could rub the nearly uh, finished grain in your hands and then they would eat the kernels. They would say, that's, that's a prohibition against harvesting. And so that's work. These religious dudes saw Jesus' disciples doing that and they said, ha, we got them. But then... Listen to what Jesus says back to those accusations that they were sinning in Mark 2.25. By the way, watch how Jesus starts off by basically insulting them and saying that they haven't read the scriptures. I love this. He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and, and hungry? Now he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. Now, the story of King David, all these religious leaders knew that about him going in, the story that Jesus just told. King David, to them, was this perfect picture of what a king should be. They look back on the reign of King David as the golden age of Israel. And they were teaching that the Messiah would be like King David and bring Israel back to a new golden age of Israel. You with me? But what they didn't realize, these religious leaders, was that the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming was much bigger than these religious leaders could have ever imagined. Jesus would not just be an earthly king, but an eternal king. He would secure the freedom for all people. They had been thinking of a small Messiah, an earthly kind of king, kind of small K king. But Jesus was saying, no, you got it wrong. This is so much bigger than you were thinking. This is important because what Jesus is meaning here with his more kind of charitable approach to the Sabbath was because Jesus and his followers were simply following the same footprints and steps of King David in the minds of the Pharisees, who was this great ancient Israeli hero. In other words, Jesus is claiming here that he, as the son of David, and his disciples are the fulfillment of, of the kingship now of King David. 
Do you see what Jesus is claiming here? Jesus is saying, look, I'm the new King David. I'm his successor. Then he points to his men. He said, these guys, these, these are like King David's men. They have a special purpose, a special calling. They're mine. Jesus says, the laws you're talking about don't apply to me or these men following me either. It's like what the Blues Brothers, any, any fans of the Blues Brothers? Yeah. You remember? It's like, back off. We're on a mission from God. This new age that Jesus was ushering in by his incarnation of his coming to earth and his eventual death and his resurrection would mean that there is a new, deeper meaning to keeping the Sabbath. It would mean that Jesus would fulfill all the laws of the Old Testament, all the laws of the Old Covenant, and not to do away with them. It would mean the institutions, but would change them. The way we keep the Sabbath would change. Regarding the Sabbath, Jesus tells them, and that's Mark 2, 27. He told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God had intended the command to be a blessing to mankind, right? We'll talk more about this in depth the next time we get together. But the Sabbath is really pointing to the ultimate Sabbath rest that we will finally experience as his people in heaven. But what had happened is that over time, these Jewish religious leaders had instituted their own interpretation of what the law of Moses required. In the case of the Sabbath, they had been, they had defined, check this out, 39 additional laws to go on top of this one law. In their opinion of what the Sabbath meant, of keeping it. Their opinions included carrying anything from one place to another. They had codified these interpretations and raised them to the level of the Ten Commandments. So you could be stoned if you didn't follow one of their words. Now that's bad. Very bad. Because when we talk about the law that was good and we subtract from it, what does it do to the law? Changes it. But the same is true if you add to the law of God, it changes the law as well, doesn't it? And so what these religious leaders, these ancestors had done for generations is to take the word of God and then add some more stuff to it. By the way, that's our natural bent. What I mean is it's the result of total depravity. Total depravity, you'll remember, is result of original sin. Doesn't mean that we're as evil as we possibly could be. But rather, every area of our lives has been poisoned, tainted, even what we consider the very good things of our life, sin has poisoned it and tainted it a little bit. That's how legalism gets worked into the system. Because sin, we have this natural sinful desire to hold everyone else accountable to the do's and don'ts that we make up. We also have this innate desire to claim some of the credit for our good works when we do them. Rather than give the glory to God. But what we, we don't want is to be held accountable for ourselves, right? It's why when you're driving on I-25 and you're touching about 85 miles an hour. And you think, well, it's okay. I, I mean, everyone else is going this. And I'm, kinda, I'm just breaking the law a little bit. Someone goes by you at 90. You go, hey, do you do that? Do you raise your hand? Officers write their names down. Over the generation, 
generations, these religious leaders had kind of piled on rules upon rules the same bent of legalism. I'm just telling you that's dangerous ground to stand on. By the way, it's so easy to point fingers at these dudes and say, how ridiculous those guys were. But let me just take a moment and ask, do you do it? I've been guilty of it and I've had to repent many times. It happens whenever we add to the words of God in Scripture and say, well, the Bible should have said this, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Or I I have been just as guilty when I've read something in Scripture, but I choose to think, well, that was not really supposed to be there, and so I'm not going to put it. That's just disregarding what God says. By the way, that's how you get wacky, liberal, progressive churches and doctrine. You just got to put yourself into the role of God and you say, let me just decide what should have been in the Bible. Like he was confused. Okay, back to the story of John 5. I digress. All right. On every area of the law, these religious dudes had added to the law another thick layer of rules to follow. For instance, in keeping the Sabbath, they had added those 39 extra prohibited laws on top of the one law. And they were vicious and watching and compelling the Jewish people to observe all these new rules on top of the laws. Like you couldn't buy or sell if you broke these. Do you see the absurdity of this? Now you and I could laugh at these ridiculous rules. But these religious leaders were dead serious. They had based their power on keeping these rules and making everyone else keep the rules. Or we'll kill you. Make your life hell first, but then we'll kill you. They watched every move you made. Yes, I want to sing that police song. Especially on the Sabbath. They had enslaved the Hebrew people with all these false man-made regulations. Keep all these. Now, as we begin to see why Jesus begins to pick a fight with these religious leaders on this thing, not only were the people not living by the life-giving law of God, there was, they were practicing a religion that was not from God at all. Jesus admonishes the Pharisees in Mark 7, verse 6. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their, hearts, their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the command of God. You hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. Now, the people were practicing these rules of these religious leaders who were leading all the people straight to hell and away from God. All of this was horrible to Jesus. So you see that he had decided to rescue his people from Israel from being enslaved to these man-made Sabbath regulations and restore the right way of showing that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. We still see this, don't we? Legalism. There's some churches that have taken God's laws that we're supposed to observe, but then they lay their own rules on top of them. They go, you got to sing this song. You got to do it in this tempo. The pastor's got to wear this thing. Of course, I wear it. And, 
you got to do all these things, what a Christian says and looks like and does and what he eats. Like religious leaders in Jesus' time, they create a religion of do's and don'ts, right? Instead of Jesus. And they say, if you can keep these rules well enough, then maybe, just maybe, God will see you and say, well, you're good enough to come to heaven. The Pharisees in Jesus' time were like this. They actually believed that if the whole nation could ever keep the Sabbath perfectly on one Sabbath day, then the Messiah would come. Now, what's funny here is that the Messiah had come and was challenging their very laws that they were trying to enforce. Now, if we think of following Christ Jesus in our life, there are two ditches that we can drive into if we're not careful. And these people are, will that believe in these things, they'll say, oh, come drive in our ditch over here. And they'll go, no, no, drive in our ditch. Now, here are the two ditches. One, we've hit legalism. Write this down. The attachment of behaviors, disciplines, and practices to the belief in order to achieve salvation and right standing before God. Legalism, the attachment of behaviors, disciplines, and practices to the belief to the belief in order to achieve salvation and right standing before God. Listen, legalism is deadly. We see it here with this story, looking at it in John 5. But just as deadly as the life of a Christian is the other ditch we can run into on the other side of the road. It's this idea, no rules matter. No law really matters. That's called antinomianism. It's a big word for sure, but you'll get this down. Antinomianism, asserting that those saved by grace through faith are not bound to follow moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. Now, I want you to get this. Two sides of the road. Legalism, antinomianism. Antinomianism, asserting that those saved by grace through faith are not bound to follow moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. We see this one, don't we? Sinclair Ferguson, the great theologian and pastor, says antinomian, an antinomian is a legalist who's just given up. <laughs> like the prodigal son. The, the parable of the prodigal son is really about two sons that are lost. One is lost to legalism, the elder son. Antinomianism, the younger son, who had given up on keeping the law. I can't give God perfection. But listen, what I can give him is my obedience, can I? But Jesus said it very clearly, Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Although as believers, we are not under the judgment and condemnation of the law. Praise God, because if we are in Christ Jesus, he has paid the price you and I were going to have to pay, which was hell. We still observe the moral law of the Old Testament or what we call the Ten Commandments. And thank you, God, that we're not under the ceremonial law anymore since the death of Jesus or the civil law of the, the Jews. Now, let me be clear. We are not saved by keeping the moral law. We are saved by the blood of Christ. 
But since we are now saved, we can keep the moral law that Jesus summed up in the two great commandments. He said this in Matthew 22 verse 37. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Do you see that last line Jesus says there? All the law and the prophets, the the whole Old Testament depend on these two commands. Jesus condenses all of the law into its essential truth. But the Pharisees had added to the law to the point where those essential truths were obliterated. In other words, if we are striving to love Jesus, we'll keep these commands. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. You should memorize this one. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Pretty simple. That does not, that does away with any thoughts of antinomianism. But it's here in the story of John 5 that Jesus is challenging the legalism and the false religion of these Jewish leaders. So Jesus is going to challenge these rules. Watch how Jesus has set up this conflict to begin. Look at uh, verse 10 again, John 5. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. This guy, this healed guy is now in trouble with these religious leaders. And this creates this huge dilemma for him on his part. I mean, he has been healed after all these years of being lame. And for the first time, he walks and gets in trouble for it. It blows me away to think that this lame man that Jesus had just healed would then throw Jesus under the bus. You go, what do you mean? Watch as this develops. The guy blames Jesus for breaking the law. The healed guy shows his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus. So the religious leaders want to know the name of this leader so they can go after him for breaking the rules. Now look at verse 12 here. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they ask. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. This is kind of funny to me. (laughs) He doesn't know. As these guys are questioning the healed guy, Jesus slips away into the crowd. By the way, do you see the absurdity of all of this? A guy's healed and can walk after being crippled for 38 years, but that doesn't matter to these dudes. They want to know Who is challenging their rules? Not praising God for a healing, a miracle. Look at this, verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, it's made clear that a disability or suffering or sickness is not necessarily tied to a person's own sin. I want to make that clear. Like you don't necessarily get cancer because you stole money from your employer. But at the same time, we know that all sickness, all suffering, all pain ultimately comes down because we live in this sin-fallen world. 
We're just born into it. Or to say it a differently, uh, different way, we die because of the curse of original sin. Now this little passage here is debated by some that say Jesus is warning this guy has been lame as a result of his personal sin. And there are some pastors that disagree with that and say, no, 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 that's not the case. But look closely at Jesus' instructions to the man. He says, see, you are doing well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. It's that phrase, sin anymore, that makes me think this is this guy's sin that had led to his suffering. So sometimes it does. We're not told what the sin was and, and must not be important to the meaning of what the Apostle John's trying to get across to us. The bigger picture here is that our sin can and does lead to suffering sometimes. I mean, even after we have been forgiven of our sin through Jesus' atoning sacrifice for his blood for our sins, we can still wrestle with the effects of sin, especially on our body. Do you see what I mean? I mean, if we have struggled with using meth, we could totally be forgiven of that. But we still might lose all our teeth. The thing is, sin scars, doesn't it? Relationships, families, and yet we can be forgiven of it. In other words, on the other side of heaven is that the promise of God will still, look at this, use all of our past to bring about his purpose and our good, his glory. That's the amazing thing. So Jesus tells this man to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to him. By the way, what would be something worse here? Well, actually, something far worse than 38 years of being able, unable to walk would be hell. Eternal conscious punishment. But I want us to see what this encounter with Jesus has with this man, with what he does next, this man. We'll see the entire point of the sign of the healing of this man. Watch closely as we read. Verse 15, the man went and reported to the Jews... That it was Jesus who had made him well. What a jerk. I mean, Jesus heals him. And the ingratitude of it, this guy shows. He goes straight to the religious leaders to sell Jesus out. You want a picture of someone healed by Jesus that doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, doesn't believe that he's Messiah? Here it is, baby. He doesn't believe. How do we know that? Because look back at verse 10 and 11 in your Bible real quick. These religious leaders had already stated their open hostility to whoever the man who healed this man was and gave him the command to walk. How dare he heal him? I mean, you get it, don't you? The healed man goes back and finds the Jewish leaders again to further attempt to distance himself from Jesus and to throw Jesus under the bus. He had apparently learned Jesus' name when Jesus had come to find him and the guy takes Jesus' name straight to the religious leaders. Dude, that's cold. He sells Jesus out by walking on the very legs Jesus just healed. By the way, remember Jesus just warned him not to sin anymore. That would lead to something far worse, right? And what is the first thing the guy does here? He goes and sins. Talk about unbelief. Verse 16. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
The Jewish leaders go straight to Jesus. They had thought it might have been him behind all of this. So now they walk up to him. They want to make him pay for breaking their rules. Now, this may seem unfair, like Jesus is just trying to do good, and now these guys are coming after him. But the Lord deliberately chose, chose to heal this man on the Sabbath to confront their superficial, fake, bankrupt religion. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. Jesus hasn't sinned at all. No. He has simply broken what they had in decided to add to the law. What they said, well, the law should have been this. Do you remember earlier today when we looked at Mark 2, when the religious leaders had been complaining to Jesus that his disciples were picking those heads of grain and eating that? You remember that, rubbing it together? And Jesus had likened himself to being the new King David and his disciples like um, his followers. Then in verse 27, Jesus had told the religious leaders that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You remember? But it's the next verse, verse 28, that drops a bombshell. Jesus says this. He says, so then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now here's why Jesus had started the conflict in the first place. He wanted to reveal this about who he is. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now some of you that have been raised in church, you hear that and you go, yeah, I get that. But you have no idea the depth of the meaning of this. We're going to look at this in in the next couple of weeks. It's what Jesus is establishing here with these people. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, not you. What this means is that Jesus is declaring himself to these religious leaders and to all those listening that he is greater than the law and above the law of the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I gave the law. And why was he greater than the law? Because Jesus as God, the Son, in his divinity, was the author of all those laws. And yet in his humanity, his man nature's human nature, he was under the law, wasn't he? As the creator God, Jesus was and still is the Lord of the Sabbath. He had the power to overrule the religious leaders' regulations that they had added because he created the Sabbath. Let's just be clear. He created the universe. John 1 tells us. And the creator is always greater than the creation. Now, why is this important at this early point in his ministry that he confront these leaders about something so small as the Sabbath? Because it's not small. And because he's claiming the authority here to incorrectly interpret the meaning of what the Sabbath is, was, and will be. Because it's going to change. Because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he is free to do whatever he wants to do and whenever he wants to do it. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is putting his foot down and claiming and assuming the power that is rightfully his, not theirs. He's going, get out of the way. 
This is a deep subject and I don't want you to miss any of it. The Sabbath has been about the Sabbath rest. And Jesus is going to show us what that means next time. And we'll even relate it to why we worship on Sunday now as our Sabbath and what that means for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to you reading these words, looking for truth, looking for wisdom. But God, there's so much here. God, I pray that you help us just digest it. Take your Holy Spirit and take these words and, and, and move them deep within our hearts. God, I pray for those here right now that have rejected you, have put you on the back burner. God, I pray that you make them uncomfortable until they turn to you. That they, you be, that they believe in you, Jesus, as the Son of God. That, the, that you have paid for their sin. That you are the Son of God. And that you died and rose again, proving you are God. We thank you for that, God. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship together? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.